0: Welcome back, Radio Entrepreneurs, listeners, and fans. I'm producer Nathan Gobes, filling in again for Jeffrey Davis this morning. I have at my side my trustee co-host, Peter Meyerson, author and retired attorney. Welcome, Peter.
1: Uh, thank you, Nathan. It's uh, There's a question whether anybody can ever fill in for Jeffrey.
0: Yeah, well, we do our best, though. We do our best. You do a good job. <laughs> thank you. We want to welcome back a uh, returning guests to our show. Tom McNulty, uh, attorney at Lando and Anastasi. Welcome, Tom.
2: Hi, thanks for having me again.
0: Thank you for being here. So I understand you wanted to talk to us about uh, monetary, uh, the monetary effects of uh, litigation and IP claims and how you can structure a business around that. Is that correct? Or did I... Did I bundle um, that a little bit?
2: Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Um, specifically in this case, um, the, the types of money damages you can get in a patent infringement lawsuit and um, and the, the different ways you can structure your business that may or may not impact that.
0: <clears throat> Great. Well, why don't we get into it?
2: Okay. Um, well, I'm sure uh, many people know um, if you've got a patent and you sue somebody, there's a couple of different types of relief uh, that you potentially could win. Uh, One of them is injunctive relief. You prevent the other side from doing anything um, that would infringe in the future. Um, Sometimes you can get attorney's fees, not in the usual case, but sometimes. Um, But specifically, what I'm focusing on today is the types of money damages you can potentially get um, when somebody's found to be an infringer. Um, So under the patent statutes, um, upon a finding of infringement, a patentee, which is the owner of a patent, is entitled to damages adequate to compensate for the infringement, and in no less, in no event less than a reasonable royalty for the use made of the invention by the infringer. So the statute sets as a floor a reasonable royalty, um, and uh, and reasonable royalties are basically treated by the courts as what the parties would have agreed to if hypothetically, at the time they were beginning uh, the infringement, they had actually sat down and negotiated a uh, patent license. Um, a lot of people view this as perhaps an unfair approach because, um, you know, there's no sort of kicker for the fact that they went ahead and infringed and you had to go through the time and effort and expense of a patent lawsuit to get them to stop. Um, but uh, for whatever reason, um, that's, uh, that's the way courts go with it.
0: Um, Interesting. But you so, said that's the, that's the floor though, correct?
2: That's the floor. The other thing you could potentially get, um, and not always, but usually it's a, it's a, you know, higher measure of damages is, uh, your lost profits. What you would have made had that other party not infringed. Um, and that's the one, like I say, in, in most cases, that's the one you want to go for. Um, but there's a couple of things you have to do, um, to qualify. It's not an automatic that you can get your lost profits. Um, the first is that you have to actually make a patented product or sell a or you know patented service, provide a patented service. You have to be in business. Um, so you know your classic patent troll that uh, they're in the business simply of holding patents and suing people, um, they they generally <laughs> or pretty much always will not get lost profits because they're not actually directly competing. <clears throat> um, so, the other part of it is oh, go ahead.
1: so so you have to actually be in business of selling that product, um, to get that kind of, uh, relief. Uh,
2: yes, yes. Um, the other thing that typically comes into play is you have to be a direct competitor, uh, with the accused infringer. So if you're selling into, you know, say the medical field and they're selling into something wholly unrelated to the medical field, um, courts would be, um, certainly more reluctant to offer to award you lost profits because you're not really, they're not really taking sales away from you with their activities. Um, And that's sort of the focus is, are they taking sales away? Mm. Um, So there's a, there's a particular test that the courts use called the Panduit test uh, named after the case in which it was sort of devised and set forth Um, to be entitled to recover for lost profits. You have to show demand for the patented product. Um, the absence of acceptable non-infringing alternatives, and I'll, I'll go into these in a little bit more detail, um, uh, you have to show that you have the manufacturing and marketing capability uh, to exploit the demand, and then you have to be able to prove the amount of profits you would have made. <clears throat> so looking at these kind of one by one, demand for the patented product, you have to show that um, you know there are people out there that are looking to buy this thing. Um, um, and the second is the absence of uh, acceptable non-infringing alternatives. You have to show that if if the accused infringer wasn't on the market, that the, the market would be basically forced to buy from you as opposed to turning to a non-infringing alternative. And that's that's one of the key ones that uh, that the lost profits analysis kind of rises and falls on, hmm. um, because you have to demand you have to define excuse me what it is that you have to be showing the absence of non-infringing alternatives um and the the broader the category of things that you're discussing uh the more likely there's going to be something non-infringing that they could turn to instead um Mm. and sort of to to um to illustrate that uh, we represented a company that made a um uh, it was, it was a board game that involved mirrored pieces, moving around a board and a fixed laser that you had to try to get the mirror to, uh, direct to the opponent's target. Um, and we were suing a company that was making a, um, a competing product pretty much, you know, the same thing. It was lasers and mirrors and moving around the board. Um, and we actually, in that case, in that case, uh, the client was able to actually get lost profits, um, because there were no other games on the market that sort of involved the the whole laser mirror thing, um, but that analysis would have been different had the courts defined the the sort of market or the sort of you know sphere of goods and services as you know board games generally as opposed to you know this particular um, iteration of, of board games. Uh, had they done that, we almost certainly would not have been able to get lost profits.
0: Right. So if it had been something, uh, some more general strategy board game, for example, then, you know, the courts could say, well, they could just go pick up a copy of Risk or whatever. Yep. Um, yep. Makes sense. And it wouldn't,
2: you know, quite frankly, it wouldn't be an unreasonable thing for the courts to do because, um, you know, when Walmart's choosing what to put on the shelves of their store, they don't necessarily care that they have a a laser mirror game. They just, right. they just want something that sells that's taken up the space. Um, so that wouldn't that wouldn't have been wildly unfair. But like I say, in that case we sort of got lucky and uh, um, and, and got the the outcome that we were looking for. Uh, and in that case the the difference between lost profits and reasonable royalty was like an order of 10. Oh um, you know so like I say it can be it can be pretty significant. Okay. Excuse me. Um, the third factor is uh, being able to show that you've got the manufacturing and marketing capability, um, you know, with the uh, globally connected, or at least perhaps once globally connected world, um, that sort of became easier because you didn't necessarily have to show that you had manufacturing uh, capability yourself. You, you could meet that criteria by showing that you could outsource it um, to, you know, one of one of many places that do that sort of thing and that you could handle delivery through third-party delivery ser- services and that sort of thing. Um, so that, that kind of – that criteria has become easier over time.
0: Uh, Question with that, though, if, if you don't mind. Do you have to actually have set up an agreement with uh, outsourced organizations to handle those things, or do you just have to prove that the, the capability exists in, within the global marketplace?
2: Um you have to show that you could exploit the capability, so it doesn 't necessarily mean you 've already got an agreement in place, but you know you 'd really have to show that that you know you could make the contact you could um you know frankly finance the <laughs> the right. third okay. party to do this sort of thing. You have to show that you know that you have the ability um beyond that there 's no sort of hard set fast set of rules it's you can sort of show it in any way that you can um okay. kind of conjure up <laughs> for lack of <laughs> a better nice. term. <laughs> um so like i say so these things are generally lost profits are generally available if you're direct rivals um you don't necessarily have to be selling a patented product so long as you're selling a competing product um you can you can uh, you know sometimes get your lost profits on things that uh, that don't themselves infringe Um, And that that can either be, you know, you've got a patent that you're not exploiting, but that you're preventing others from exploiting. It can be sales that come along with the patented product. Um, So if you had, for example, a a patented printer, um, you could potentially get your lost profits on the printer and on the ink cartridges that would have been sold with it. Um, The other part about it is if you've got a patent that covers a component um, of a product, um, the lost profit applies to the product as a whole and not just to the patented component. Provided that you're selling the product as a whole, if you're, you know, if you're a component supplier, you're only going to get the component uh, profits. But if you're selling, you know, so if you're selling a smartphone and you've got a patent on some piece of that, you know, there's obviously going to be all kinds of other IP and all kinds of things like that that are involved in it. But you could potentially get lost profits, um, you know, if you're selling the entire phone yourself on on. The entire phone, and not just on the component. Hmm. Um, Now, one of the catches to this, and this is one of the things that sort of leads to how you structure your business, is um, you can only get lost profits on your own damages, not profits that a related company would have received. Um, So that might impact, you know, like I say, um, how you choose to structure your business, how you choose to decide who's going to be the owner, you know, the patent holder uh, of a particular set of patents. Um, you know, if, if, if you've got a, a parent, for example, that holds uh, a patent portfolio and a subsidiary that does the actual manufacturing, um, the parent wouldn't be able to get lost profits unless it was sort of a necessary condition that the, the profits from the subsidiary, you know, automatically flow to the parent. Um, and for I know sure. a lot
1: of... How would, you, how would you structure that? Would you do a licensing agreement between the parent and the sub to give the, the sub, you know, access to the uh, intellectual property, the patent?
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, this would depend on, on a lot of other factors, tax related, right. you know, what your business is doing, all that sort of thing. But um, in a case like that, you could potentially give the subsidiary a, a uh, an exclusive license um if you don't have the exclusivity, then they probably still wouldn't be able to get lost profits. Uh, but if they've got exclusivity, at least within, you know, their geographic range or their, you know, particular area of business, um, you know, then they've, they've got a chance of getting the lost profits themselves. Um, but again, that would be the subsidiary getting the lost profits and not the parent company, you know, the, the, the actual owner of the patent in that case. Um, obviously they can then divvy that up as they see fit. Uh um uh, but that would be that would be sort of one way of doing it um i know a lot of times you'll have companies that have like a shell corporation holding intellectual property you know for various reasons um and this would be you know arguably a reason to reconsider that strategy
0: right um, right because they're not the ones generating any profits or anything like that 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 could prove lost profits
2: yeah well they're not uh they're not um you know frankly they're not engaging in business. Um, so they probably would sort of default out of this right from the get-go because they're not mm-hmm. actually making a product. Um, the other thing we run into a lot, and particularly with some of the startups uh, and smaller companies that we deal with, is um, the owner of the company is the creator of the technology and, and you know, the inventor on a patent. And they just, for whatever reason, choose not to, or don't get around to, or however it may come to be, uh, to assign the patent uh, to the company itself. Uh, and then you know they'll they'll be surprised to find out that they're not entitled to lost profits in in a circumstance like that.
1: Can, can they uh, retroactively make the assignment?
2: Um, generally speaking. Um, no, I mean you could potentially get you know if you do it like midsuit, you could and, and the other side's still doing what they're doing, you could do it midsuit and potentially get lost profits from then forward. Um, you know it, it, the type of damages can be sort of divided by, um, um, you know, divided in time. You know, so that you're entitled to royalties for this part and profits for this part.
0: Interesting.
1: I, I guess it makes the point that you really need to have very sophisticated. Technical advice when you're setting up your business and using patents.
2: Yeah, and you probably need to get that sort of advice from you know several sources. Um, you know, I can I can tell people what to do on the patent side. I can't really specifically advise on the tax implications of any of these sorts of things or. Or that sort of thing, um, or you know, I mean, one reason one reason people sometimes won't include IP or won't assign IP to the particular company that's in business is um, so it's not an asset of the company should they go into receivership.
0: Hmm. Um, well, so, you know, there's, there's oh, yeah, there's
2: there, there's there's a few different kind of factors that come into play, so it's not you know it's it's worth consideration, but it shouldn't necessarily be the sole driving factor in how you structure things.
1: Yeah, right. so it's Speaking from experience, it's hard to get startup companies to spend the kind of money necessary to get the brains around the table to analyze the problem.
2: Yeah, and that's understandable. I mean, there's you know when you're yeah. starting out, there's a limited pool of resources to be, uh, uh, you know, to be throwing on on abstract, not directly leading to money advice. <laughs> even yeah. if even if down the road it does lead to money. <laughs>
0: yeah. Makes sense, especially since at that time, you know, some of these things like, well, what if somebody rips off our patent is not always what they're considering. You know, they're looking at their first few customers, getting their their business up and running, etc. But uh, regardless, it's clearly a complex issue that, uh, you know, if people have... Questions They should be talking to you, and uh, you know even though it can be expensive for for startups in general, I don't mean you guys particularly I just mean like <laughs> we said to get to get brains around the table that's why we produce a lot of this content. we bring you on regularly uh, but if people wanted to get more advice from you or find out how Lando and Anastasi can help their company uh, what's the best way to reach you
2: uh You can always get me uh, on my email tk uh, I'm sorry, that's my home email. Uh, t-, t McNulty. I do that all the time. T McNulty, M-C-N-U-L-T-Y at uh, Or you can try me by phone 617-395-7040.
0: Great. And uh, Peter, I know you're an author. Uh, you may be retired from your practice, but uh, if people want to reach you or find out uh, how they can get your book, what's the best ways for them to, to do that?
1: Well, they can email me at ppmyerson, M-Y-E-R-S-O-N, at AOL.com. And if they want uh, an electronic copy of my novel, they can go on Amazon, type in the search bar, Peter Myerson, and my novel will come up. And if they want a real printed version, uh, I have a great print-on-demand company out in Arizona. I think it's Arizona you know, today, you don't even know, know where they are, uh, called The Book Patch. And if you go on The Book Patch and type in my name, you'll get my novel.
0: Great. Well, and of course, you'll find more content with Tom on our show, uh, Radio Entrepreneurs, on our website, radioentrepreneurs.com. Uh, we're on LinkedIn, YouTube, and many podcast sites as well. I want to thank both you gentlemen for joining us today. It's for having- a pleasure. Thanks. And we'll be back with more on Radio Entrepreneurs.